In Normandy, in the 16th century, when a peasant woman gave birth, the other peasant women in her village, her community, would come and bring gifts to her, primarily three gifts, cider, honey, and nutmeg. Now, if you've ever lived in other cultures, there are enormous cultural um, values wrapped up in gifts and gift giving and when you give gifts and what kind of gifts are given and what a gift means. Now, in Normandy in the 16th century, we've learned through um, a number of academic studies of history and anthropology that the reason they were doing that is that throughout the fabric of their community was this idea that God is a generous, gift-giving God and that humans are supposed to reflect that. Now, various cultures have different rules and reasons for giving gifts, but at that time in Normandy, that was absolutely what was going on. Now, I've learned this from reading a, uh, from a fascinating book that I've not read all of yet by a, by a lady named Natalie Zimmon Davis. She's one of the kind of famous historians that are alive today. She's in Canada, retired from the University of Toronto. And in this book she writes, she's actually studying gift-giving in France during the 16th century. And she, she identifies that in France, and I think it's the same today, at that time, there were three basic modes of living, three ways that people interacted with others. The first mode of living, the first way of interacting with other people that comes out of Davis's historical and anthropological analysis of 16th century France is what she calls the coercive mode. Now, this is all going to get to the long passage that Alec read. Just stay with me for a minute. The coercive mode of living, this way of relating to other people, it's thievery. It's stealing in various forms. It's when you take something that isn't yours and is not being offered to you. Now, this has a, a lot of manifestations in our culture today, all, all the way from the person whose vocation is stealing, the professional thief, to the person who has insider information. So they sell their stock before it tumbles down and the hapless buyer takes the loss. They've taken from that buyer. It, it ranges all the way to the person who slips a pen into their pocket at work and takes it home. Taking what doesn't belong to you and hasn't been offered to you. So she said this is one way of relating to other people. There are ba- people who are fundamentally coercive in their dealings with others. The second mode of living, way of relating, she identified is the exchange mode. This is where you give something in order to get something. I need a bike, so I pay money to the shop owner in exchange for the bike. Or Janelle and I go down to Hess's and we take some chairs that we don't like and we exchange them. For some chairs and some argument. (laughs) For some chairs that we do like. The exchange way of living. The third mode of living is the gift mode. This is where you give something you do not owe to a recipient who does not deserve it. See, when there's deserve involved, now we're back to the exchange mode. My mom and dad visited for five days last week. And for most of the time, my dad worked. He floated out with mud, our wallpaper and our foyer, and he and I painted. 
I didn't deserve it. He didn't owe it. I mean, if anything, right, parents, it's the opposite. I owe him everything. I didn't, I couldn't have earned that. He just did that because my dad loves to give gifts and he gave us the gift of his knowledge and his labor. So in the coercive mode of living, we take, takers, we take illicitly. In the exchange mode of living, you get legitimately, you get things. And in the gift mode, you give, you give generously. Take, get, give. There's three kinds of people, I think. Largely speaking, takers, getters, and givers. Now, these basic categories, when I read them in this book she's writing, has nothing to do with Christianity. This is Ephesians 4.28. This is, a, this is a great way to understand what Paul is saying. Look at Ephesians 4.28. If you have your Bible, and I hope you have one. If you don't, jump on Amazon.com. I looked this morning just to see. You can get an ESV paperback for one cent. Okay, through Amazon. So I encourage you to get a Bible. Bring it to church with you. Find Ephesians chapter 4. If you need to use your table of contents, that's absolutely fine. Ephesians 4.28. Listen to all three modes of living. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We see the taking right, the getting, and the giving. Now, takers, these are thieves. They take things that don't belong to them. They rob, they steal, and sometimes it's blatant, right? Sometimes it's blatantly breaking into a house and stealing something. Apparently, the Christians Paul was writing to were coming out of a way of living, and many of them had been professional thieves. I mean, that's what they had done for a living. And Paul is saying, let those guys among you stop doing that. So it's, it's, it's very obvious sometimes, but there are oftentimes, what I like about Davis's book is that she identifies it as a way of interacting with others that can sometimes be very subtle and in all of our lives. I mean, there are examples of people who refuse to work when they're able, but they, t- they still take food and clothing and shelter. See, they're in that mode of living where they're taking what they haven't earned or deserved and doesn't belong to them, and wasn't really offered to them, but they manipulate a system and a society in order to take. Of course, if you're unable to work, then others, we are obliged to help those who are unable to work. But if you are able to work, and you refuse to work, yet you take food and shelter and clothing, you are a thief. You're stealing. And this has been going on forever. In another letter that the same author, Paul, writes, he writes to the Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Which, by the way, even made its way into the Marxist atheist constitution of the Soviet Union. This quote from the Bible. I've heard Scott quote this in a German accent several times. You must work. So God is telling us through Scripture here in Ephesians 4.28 that when you find places in your life where you're a taker, stop. Don't interact with others that way. Getters. Now remember a getter. This is a person who exchanges goods. They get what they deserve, right? They put out the work and they get back. We give work to our employer who gives us wages in return. That's 
the way our society tends to operate. That's what he means in this passage by honest work. You get what you put in. No more, no less. If you get less than you put in to your job, then either you were generous or your employer is a thief. I mean, if you're getting less than you're putting in, then either you're being generous or your employer is stealing. If you get more than what you put into your job, then either you are stealing from your employer or your employer is being generous. Now, let let them no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Takers, Paul is saying, should become getters, but it doesn't stop there. Getters should become givers. In this one verse that Paul maps out, let them no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, so that, why do you get what you, why do you labor? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The point of exchanging your labor for wages in our culture is not simply to satisfy your desires or needs. It's not simply so that you stop stealing from society, but the point of exchanging labor for wages, Paul is saying, is in order so that for the purpose that you can cover yourself and you're no longer a taker and you have enough that you can what? Help others in need. An important purpose of work right here in Scripture is have something to share with anyone in need. Now, part of what this means is that the exchange mode or the getting mode or the giving mode are not mutually exclusive. In fact, unless wealth has fallen into your lap, to be a giving person, a generous person, you must be a working person. And one of the great sins of not being a working person is that you can't be generous. You must exchange your labor for wages, and it takes work to do this in order to give. So God is telling us through his passage of Scripture to shift our way of living. That whole passage Alec read to us was about, was about changing one way of living for another way of living. Why? So that we can live lives of generous givers. But why? See, we've got to learn to read the Bible in an engaged way. Why? Why do we have to do that? Why, why can't we just be workers? What's wrong after all? Aren't we wired to maximize profit? Why not stop there? Why, what's wrong with working honestly with our hands and taking care of ourselves without burdening anyone else? Why does Paul insist that that's a good medium step, a middle step, but why does he say we have to go past that step? I mean, what is it about this whole letter that is pushing us to go beyond that? Why? Why should we become generous people? Well, the answer is in this passage that Alec read. Look back at verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And by that, he means people who don't know God. 
in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, the way of living of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way. See, Christianity is a way. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to, get this, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner, way of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So as Christians, we're supposed to put off the old self and put on the new self. The old self, from this passage of Scripture, and you know this, your self, your first nature, What comes natural is self-centered. But the new self, the self that Christ in you is pushing you to be, the new self is filled with Christ and opens up in love toward the neighbor. Now, so Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he's using this metaphor of clothing. Put off your old self. And put on the new self. That, that, that old way of living, self-centered living, greedy living. I'm going to make enough for me and just me. That way of living is, is like a worn, frayed, filthy piece of clothing. Paul is saying strip it off as soon as you can. The new way of living is fresh and clean and beautiful. But a metaphor only goes so far. Because this is really hard work. And it's so much harder to shift from one mode of living into another mode. It's so much easier to change your clothes than it is to change your way of living. It's hard work. 2 Peter 1.5 says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. In other words, when you come to Christ in faith, you have to work hard. You have to make every effort to put on that new way of living. To pick up the clothing that God holds out to you. You have to make... This is tough, lifelong work, and it is not sexy. Everybody thinks, they, yeah, in a moment I could be braveheart. I could go down for the team. I could have a great act of courage. But this way of living is in a thousand little decisions you make that you will get no medal for. That most people will not even notice. You've got to work at it over and over until certain choices of being generous become your habit. And that habit will yield the fruit of you being a generous person in your second nature. So generosity can become second nature. But it will only become second nature when you make the hard choices over and over and over and over until choices become habits. And then habits produce the fruit of nature and character. For generous giving to become second nature, you've got to continually deny your current nature, which is skeptical and cynical and self-centered. 
and built on a whole getting mentality, bootstraps. They don't deserve it. They can't earn it. So I'm not going to give it to them. See, a lot of us, we want to live in that exchange culture as our character where we interact with the world based on deserve. But we've got to continuously put off our old habits of living. And this is a hard road of self-denial. It's what Jesus was getting at when he said, if you want to live the Jesus way, you must take up your cross. And for some of us, the cross we must die on is the cross of selfishness as we live out the virtue of generosity. Now, again, back to the question, why? I still haven't answered it, but why? Why should we be generous? What's the big deal? Why is generosity worth such a painful path? It's easy to see what's wrong with stealing, but honestly, what's wrong with living the kind of life where you work honestly with your hands and you take care of yourself and you don't burden anyone else and you just stop there? What's so evil about that? The answer is here again in this passage. And it's because the God whom we worship and the Christ who fills us is neither a taker nor a getter, but he is a giver. See, Paul's ethic is rooted in his theology. He's saying this is who God is and God is life. And if you want to know what real life is, Jesus is the man, John says in his gospel, behold, the man. Jesus is not just God. He's God living the human life the best way. He's showing us what it means to be a true human. And aren't you glad Jesus didn't operate in the exchange mode? Who among us would want to face a God who we had to bring ourselves up to the table In a bargain with him. The God who made all things. What can we give him that's reciprocal for what he gives us? How can we ever be in that room? Another letter Paul wrote, Romans 11.36. He says, for from him, talking about God, and through him and to him are all things. What this means is that God has given us absolutely everything we have from him are all things. Everything you have is from God. And it's a mistake to begin to think about yourself as being a decent citizen and a responsible family man who obeys the law and does good things. And because of that, you secure for yourself a decent middle class existence. When you began to conceive of yourself in that way, you are headed down a tragically deceived path. God has given everything, absolutely everything that you have. He's given it to you. Everything we think we earn, everything we think we deserve is a gift from God. Every gift comes from God. And everything is a gift from God. See, some of us are comfortable saying every gift is from God. We're fine with that. All the good stuff in life. I'm blessed. How you doing, brother? I'm blessed. God's given me something. But but the corollary of that is not just that every gift is from God. It's that everything is a gift. 
See, that's a far more revolutionizing thought. That nothing in your life has really been earned and deserved. But that all has been freely given by God. So Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Why should we do the hard moral work of developing habits of generosity? Because the God whom we worship and the Jesus who, fill, who lives in us and the spirit who fills us is a generous giver. And to be a Christian is to imitate God. Look at Ephesians 1 again. Be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And get this, gave. Gave himself up for us. God is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave. This is, this is fundamental to the character of the Christian God. That this God is a generous, extravagant giver. But there's another reason that we're to make the hard choice over and over To be generous givers. It's because. God is given to us. So that. We will share with others. We are recipients of God's gifts. In order to pass them on. The whole reason for the things in your life are not just to stop with you. Now, now let's take this for just a minute. What, what I'm saying here is that when we read Scripture, we see that what it means to be a homo sapien, a homo sapien, to be a human, is to be a channel of God's gifts. Now, let's look at that from three angles. Three angles of what it means to be a channel of God's gifts. First of all, notice what this says about God's intention for humans. Our purpose when it comes to God giving us gifts is twofold. To flourish and to help others flourish. We read this in the psalm. Those who love God will flourish. They'll flourish in the land. I mean, so one of the purposes of God giving us rain and sun... And and so many good things is so that life flourishes. One of the most famous and important passages in the Bible is Genesis 12. It's this bright glimmer of hope right in the middle of some of the darkest moments in the Bible. When God looks at one man, Abram, and he says to this man, Abram, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. You see, a channel. The blessing doesn't stop with you. You are made to not only, not only do I want to bless you, but I want you to be a channel of blessing. You see, we, if we just enjoy good things from God without passing them on, if we are blessed without being a blessing, then we fail to be a channel of God's generous gifts. As Christians, we're made to be givers. And if we do not give... If you are not generous, you are at odds with yourself because you were made to do that. It's like putting a saw in a bind. It is at odds with itself and somebody's going to get hurt. When we aren't generous givers, we are at odds with who God is. We are blessed to be a blessing. And if you try to mess with that equation, somebody will be hurt. Now, that's the first part of what it means to be a channel. 
God's intention for us is to be a channel. But a second thing that it means to say that we are meant to be channels is it says something about the gift itself. God's intention for the gift. So God gives us gifts. Sometimes they're material gifts like food and furniture or a house or a vehicle or clothes. Some of God's gifts are immaterial goods though, right? Like ideas. Some of God's gifts are skills like the ability to play music or to work on a house. And some of God's gifts are capacities. One I'm very familiar with, brute strength. (laughs) No, not even close. Some people have incredible muscular capacities or intelligence. So God gives us gifts and these gifts are meant to be enjoyed. As a recipient of God's gift, I should enjoy the gift. I mean, if to not do that is like me giving Alan a gift and him despising it, right? Now, Fran doesn't want me to tell you this, I'm sure, so I'm going to. Fran made, we needed a new goblet. So she goes, do you make it? And she made it, right? So we're going to use that this morning. You know what would be awful? If we didn't enjoy it, right? One of the ways we honor the giver is by enjoying the gift. To say that we're channels of gifts, part, I'm not trying to say don't enjoy the gifts of God. Absolutely we enjoy them. They're meant to be enjoyed. God wants you and me to enjoy the gifts and to benefit from them. They're the stuff of God's blessings. Physical, immaterial, capacities. These are the stuff of the blessing of God. God gives them to us like my dad painted this room for me. Why? To please me, to bless me, to love me. And I enjoy that. And enjoying that, I I enjoy him and bless him. But we can't just do with these gifts as we please. They come to us with an ultimate name and address on them that is not our own. With some gifts, enjoying them and passing them on happen at the same time. Last night, Jesse is a great violinist. She plays in the um, Washington and Lee Shenandoah Symphony Orchestra. Quite a long name. And uh, so she gets comp tickets. And last night it was um, Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto and Holtz, The Planets. And she gave, she and Zeke gave, Jesse uh, and Zeke gave Janelle and I two tickets. And I took Spencer on a date. And Zeke took Rose on a date. And we got dressed up and we went to a fancy restaurant. And um, we listened to this great music. Now think about this for a minute. So the gift of music. The giving of it and the enjoying of it occur at the same time for Jesse, right? She got something none of us got. She got to play Jupiter. I mean, amazing, right? She was closer to the trumpets than we were, right? Um, We enjoyed it, but in her giving of it is her enjoyment of it. Some gifts are like that. It's in the giving that you receive the joy of them. But then there are other times, to be honest, where you've got to decide with a particular gift. Between enjoying it and giving it away. I mean, aren't, all gifts aren't like music. Right? My dad always taught us growing up, when you get unexpected money, wait. Because God might have somebody else's name on it. See, a lot of us, as soon as we get the bonus, our first thought is, thanks. And then we fill in the blank with, it's mine. With some gifts... We have to decide when a friend is in a a dire need. 
Do I purchase a new car or do I give a donation that helps this situation? The point being, God gives gifts to be enjoyed and God wants us to enjoy the gifts and to benefit from them. But they come to us with an ultimate name on them, an address that is not our own. We are blessed to be a blessing. Now, one more thing about gifts. And that's not that's what God's intention is for other recipients. The things I'm given are not just mine. They're in my hands. So look at it this way. Some of them, while they're in my hands, do not belong to me. They belong to my neighbor. And to not pass them on is like the UPS guy taking your package to his house. It's stealing. It's thievery. And you haven't just failed God, you've failed the intended recipient. There are gifts in my care from God that I have no right to. I am obligated to give them away. That's what it means. We are to be channels of God's gifts. And to do this, clearly... We need wisdom. How do you know what to do when? See, this is the problem. The Bible is very complex on money. You read parts of, part of the Bible on money and you think you're supposed to sell everything or you're not even worthy to pray. You read other parts of the Bible on money and it's the people who love God who are eating the great food. It takes real wisdom. The reason the Bible is so complex on money is because there are a thousand variables in any given situation that that determine what is the right thing to do with the stuff you have. Now, of course, you can give so much away that you bring ruin on yourself and your family, or you can become arrogant in your giving and humiliate the recipients of your gifts. Wisdom is required. But as much as it is humanly possible, we must be imitators of God. We must practice the fine art of generous giving. But here's where we shouldn't be intimidated. It's an art that we can learn. Because generous giving is itself a gift that God gives to humans. We can and must learn to live lives of wise and generous giving. Now I'll finish the sermon with one last very important point. Last week I preached the first of four sermons on money. The one last week was on the whole system of money that sometimes we have to repent of. Part of what we need to see in this passage this morning and in the passage from last week, and get this, this is so important. In Scripture, faith and finances cannot be separated. Your faith and your money are not separate issues in the Bible. That's what I hope the cumulative effect of last week and this week and the next two weeks as we talk some more about money from different angles are, is that faith and finances are intimately connected. Your money is central to your living the Christian life. Now, some people treat their money and their faith like I treat my food at dinner. I don't like them to touch. I'm one of these guys that gets them separated and eats them one at a time, generally speaking. There's some moments where I allow integration. But generally speaking, I'm a segregationist when it comes to my food. And there are some of us that that's how we want our money. We want our money separate from our faith. And we don't like churches talking about money. It's some, we've bought into the lie of the enlightenment that religion, it, it doesn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. But listen. 
any person who attempts to separate their money and their faith is simply unfaithful to the God of the Bible. If you desire for your beliefs and your practices to be shaped by the moral authority of God in your life, then you must grapple with the incredible claims that God has on everything in your possession. Maybe you're not a Christian. You know what this means? If you're not a Christian, it means that if you would develop the habit of generous giving, then you can slip into the Christian way of life the way some people slip into large churches. You can just slide into it. You can try on the Christian way of life. Like trying on a pair of shoes. Walk around in this way of living for a while and you will discover a living God. Not at the end of an argument, but at the end of a life well lived. Let's pray.